I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. This is episode 34, The End of the Time of Troubles. Thanks for listening in, wherever you are, but particularly those of you in, in Ukraine and those of you in Russia, well, only you in Russia who know and care about what's really going on. Okay, so at the end of the last episode, we'd reached a bit of a cliffhanger. It was the year 1605. Tsar Feodor II, Boris Gudunov's son, and his mother Maria, Boris's wife, had been murdered. And Moscow was in the hands of the new Polish-backed Tsar, false Dmitri I, and his Russian followers, who, whether they believed it or not, had convinced themselves outwardly that Dmitri was the true heir to the throne. And talking of Maria, and Feodor for that matter, as if the time of troubles isn't confusing enough, we've got a slew of people with the same or similar sounding first names to contend with. So just to keep everything as simple as possible, here's a quick reminder. There are or were three Feodors. Feodor I, the bell ringer, Ivan the Terrible's son, who died back in 1598. Feodor II, Boris Gudunov's son, who was Tsar for a couple of months, and who's just been murdered. And then finally, Feodor Romanov, who has become the priest Filaret, and is one of those who are currently propping up the regime of false Dmitri I. Then we have two Marias and a Marina. Boris Godunov's wife Maria, who has just been murdered, false-stroke-real Dmitri's mother, Maria Nagaya, who has just found out that her long-lost son is still alive, and then finally, there's Marina, who is Dmitri, or false Dmitri's, Polish fiancé. And to top everything off, there will be at least two more Dmitris, but I'll explain all of that when we get there later in the episode. So this week, we'll be tracking the time of troubles through to its end point, 
And as that statement and the title of this episode suggests, there is light at the end of the tunnel. But remember, and it's often said, that the sky is always at its darkest just before the dawn, even though in reality it isn't. So to put it more simply, things will get worse before they get better. There are no announcements, observations or marketing messages this week, but one thing I will say is that this episode has a higher than usual amount of twists and turns, so please bear that in mind. Okay, if you're ready, let's crack on and do some history of Russia. And let's start by getting a feel for what kind of character False Dmitri I was, and what he looked like. Well, according to a couple of sources, the pretender was of medium build and height, had a dark complexion, a few prominent warts on his face, a large shoe-shaped nose, and jet black hair. However, there were two things about his appearance that really stood out. Firstly, at a time in Russia when every male had a beard, and, and pretty much every male did, especially the priests and the boyars, and when I say beard, I'm not referring to today's immaculately groomed versions. I'm talking full-on bird's nests. Dmitri, however, was clean-shaven, which must have caused quite a stir in solidly conservative Moscow. And then secondly, for someone of average height and build, the new Tsar was said to have possessed quite incredible physical strength the kind of strength where he could reportedly bend horseshoes with his bare hands. In terms of his temperament, however, Dmitri was described as being quiet, calm and stolid, but as having a generous and magnanimous disposition, especially to his friends. Oh, and one last thing, he didn't drink alcohol. So let's see how this strange-looking, sober, and on the surface, decently mannered young man, he either actually was or was pretending to be 22 years old in 1605, got on as the leader of the Russian state. And the key words there were, on the surface. Well, the first thing that Dmitri did, or had others do on his behalf, was to get rid of the patriarch Job. And the reasons for getting the old man out of the way were twofold. Firstly, because Job was one of those people with impeccable morals, who are constantly surprised or let down by the others around them who just don't have the same ethics or principles. And then secondly, Job just couldn't stomach either the new regime or Dmitri and didn't really care who knew it. So who is going to get rid of this troublesome priest? Well, at some point during June 1605, armed supporters of the pretender burst into the Cathedral of the Dormitian and a boyar named Petr Basmanov declared Job a traitor. And then on the 24th of June, the Tsar's council announced that the patriarch's retirement on the grounds of old age and ill health, and Job went into effective exile in his monastery at Staritsa, about 130 miles northwest of Moscow, where, unfortunately, he went completely blind. He was replaced by the much more pliable patriarch Ignatius. But this won't be the last that we'll hear of Job, which may or may not provide a clue as to how events would turn out. Anyway, enough of me being coy with my mites and maybes. On the 21st of July 1605, Dmitri was officially crowned as Tsar of Russia, and then he got down to work. 
Action number one was to agree with Sigismund III's suggestion, and Sigismund, if you remember, was the king of Poland, that Russia and the Commonwealth should enter into a formal alliance with Russia as the junior partner and Sigismund pulling the strings. Action number two was to start planning for a war with Poland against the Ottoman Empire, again at the say-so of Sigismund. And then on the home front, Dmitry introduced a number of minor political and economic reforms. But that was sort of it, because Dmitry seemed to like spending most of his time in the palace with Boris Godunov's daughter, Princess Xenia, who, if you remember, had been spared when her brother and mother had been killed. But there was nothing remotely romantic about this arrangement, as a number of sources state that Dmitry had cruelly abused and compromised Xenia, you get my drift, and was effectively keeping her as a concubine whilst his intended wife, Marina, was 700 miles away in Poland. So much for on-the-surface sobriety and a nice disposition then. So whilst everything in Russia seemed to be going okay, the reality was that behind the facade, things were getting tense. And that's partly because Dmitri, who remember everyone knew was a pretender, wasn't cutting the mustard as a czar. He was either busy in the palace or busy satisfying Sigismund's latest scheme. And then partly because of the behaviour of his army, which had remained in Moscow and was doing what 17th century armies like to do in peacetime and away from home, drink, cause trouble and seriously annoy the locals. And there was something else that was annoying the good citizens of Moscow, and that was Dmitri's and the Poles' lack of respect towards the Orthodox religion. But we'll come to that, because at some point during the winter of 1605-1606, Dmitri received some news. A communication came from Marina's family back in Poland, which said something along the lines of, you've been engaged for a while now, and we think it's time you got married. Now apparently when Dmitri and Marina had got engaged prior to the march on Moscow, an agreement was reached that the couple could only get married if and when Dmitri had become the Tsar and had sorted out the alliance between Russia and Sigismund. Well, you've kept up your end of the bargain, Dmitri, and Marina is on her way. So this presented the pretender with an immediate problem, what to do about Xenia. And unfortunately, there was only one answer something that powerful men had been doing to powerless, problematic, from the man's point of view, women across the ages, shutting them up. And Xenia, who by now was pregnant, was quickly sent away to a convent and had her name changed to Olga. The wedding between Dmitri and Marina took place in Moscow on the 8th of May, but it wasn't long before the religious tension that I mentioned a few minutes ago quickly came back to the fore. And the catalyst or tipping point was that Marina had decided that she wasn't going to convert to Orthodox Christianity, which was very much a tradition when a Tsar married a woman of another faith. And prior to this, resentment had been building up in Moscow due to the fact that Dmitri's army was made up of mainly Polish Catholics, with a smattering of other European Protestants, who when they weren't drinking and causing trouble, were praying in Orthodox churches. And so these religious tensions, together with the pretender's less than convincing leadership style, 
and the behaviour of a sizable number of foreign soldiers in Moscow finally caused the boyars, under the leadership of our old friend Vasily Shusky, to snap. And this group then spread a rumour that Tsar Dmitri was about to lock the city gates and order his army to massacre the citizens of Moscow. And this did the trick, because on the morning of the 17th of May 1606, days after Dmitri's marriage to Marina, huge numbers of boyars and commoners suddenly stormed the Kremlin. Dmitri, realising that he was in danger, tried to escape by jumping out of a window, and you know you're in serious trouble when you have to jump out of a window. But he fell and fractured his leg. He managed to crawl to a nearby bathhouse and hide, but was spotted, dragged out by the mob and murdered. And with their blood now up, the crowd went berserk and started an orgy of violence aimed squarely at the foreigners, who had been lording it over them for the past year. Once the dust had settled, the boyars agreed that what was now required was an old-school Russian Tsar, someone with links to the old establishment who could be trusted to restore order and look after their interests. So, step forward, 54-year-old Vasily Shusky, who now became Tsar Vasily IV, and whose first moves were a to have forced Dmitri I's body put on display so that everyone could see that he was completely dead, and then have him cremated so that everyone could see that he was absolutely completely dead, and more of that soon. And then B, to change his story yet again about the murder of the real Prince Dmitri, back to the official tale concerning the knife and the epileptic fit. And then finally C, tie his very tenuous link with the throne to the fact that he was a distant relative of Alexander Nevsky, Russia's 13th century hero, which is interesting because that made him, in effect, a Rurikid, even though most historians see him as a Shusky Tsar. You can't blame Vasily for trying to establish royal connections, but the reality was that nobody was fooled, least of all Vasily himself. He knew that he'd been given the job by a very small group of boyars who would try to control him and it would probably replace him when the time was right. But for the time being, he was the man in charge, and by all accounts, was determined to give it his best shot, even though a tiny part of his brain must have been saying, why me? Why now? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Anyway, 
Realising first and foremost that it was the boyars that needed to be kept on side, he let it be known that in the future, no one from the top echelons of society could be executed without the agreement of the boyar Duma, a sort of advisory assembly or council, and that the practice of punishing a guilty man's innocent family and relatives would now be abandoned. He then decided to take a leaf out of Boris Godunov's playbook by introducing measures against the freedom of movement of peasants from one landowner to another. However, like Boris, he failed, mainly because in the boyar's eyes, the measures didn't go far enough. You have to wonder here, what exactly did the boyars want? But crucially, because Vasily's word just didn't carry sufficient weight, particularly outside of the capital, where things through no fault of Vasily's had become a bit of a free-for-all. And then the rumours started. False Dimitri wasn't dead, was planning another insurrection. And there was even mention of another pretender, a certain false Peter, who was allegedly the son of Tsar Feodor the Bellringer. During the winter of 1606-07, the new Tsar faced his first serious opposition in the shape of a rebellion, strangely and jointly led by a junior member of the aristocracy, Prince Shakovskoy, and a Cossack hetman or chief named Ivan or Ivan Bolotnikov. Vasily's brothers, Ivan, and annoyingly yet another Dmitri, were sent out to deal with the insurgency but failed to stop the rebels who continued on their march towards Moscow. Luckily, though, Vasily had an ace up his sleeve, his nephew, Prince Mikhail Shuisky. Now, like Job, but for different reasons, Mikhail was one of those annoying characters who was not only handsome, clever, witty and popular, but who was a more than useful military commander, who had been loyal to Boris Godunov and who had now transferred that loyalty to Uncle Vasily. Mikhail headed out with a small army and managed to first divide and then crush the rebel forces, something that was easier than expected because Shakovskoy and Bolotnikov had no clear strategic ambitions and even if they'd managed to cobble a plan together, no clear sense of how they would go about implementing it. At the same time that Tsar Vasily was informed that the rebellion was over, he also received three pieces of other news, two good and one bad. On the positive side, false Peter had been caught and hanged, and ex-patriarch Job had returned to Moscow, false Dmitri's patriarch Ignatius having been locked up in a monastery back in 1606. And so to mark his victories over the rebels and add some religious gloss to his reign, in February 1607, Vasily got Job and the current patriarch, Hermogen, to jointly celebrate a holy liturgy in the Cathedral of the Dormitian. But to counter all of this, there was a massive troubling negative, because rumours were spreading to the effect that another army of Poles, rebellious Russians and Cossacks had been raised and was marching towards Moscow. And at its head was... False Dmitri II, who was pretending to be False Dmitri I, who, as we know, had pretended to be Ivan the Terrible's youngest son, the real Dmitri. And I really hope all of that is clear. There's no real certainty over who this new pretender really was, 
Some said he was a priest's son, others that he was originally Jewish. But according to those who met him, he looked nothing like false Dimitri number one. But this was the time of troubles, where people were seemingly able to believe anything at the drop of a hat, and both Maria Nagaya, real Dimitri's mother, and Marina, false Dimitri I's wife, were wheeled out, and both swore blind that the new pretender was a genuine article. And in fact, Marina actually moved in with false Dimitri II, and in the fullness of time, bore him a male heir. So by 1608, false Dimitri II and his army were effectively in control of a large part of Russia, and had resisted several of Vasily's and nephew Mikhail's attempts to bring them to heel. What was worse for the Tsar is that several leading boyars, including the chameleon-like Filaret and his followers, had anticipated which way the wind was blowing and had thrown their lot in with the new pretender. So Vasily realised that before long the game would be up and that he urgently needed help, and so he decided to strike a deal with the only other regional power that could potentially tip the balance in favour of both himself and Russia the Swedes. So, let's pause and look at what that meant. So, by early 1610, there were four different armed groups in the vicinity of Moscow. You had those loyal to the Tsar, led by Vasily IV, whose best general, Mikhail, had been suddenly struck down by an illness and who would unfortunately die later in the year, aged just 23. Then you had false Dmitri II's rebels, and then the two foreign armies belonging to the Poles and the Swedes, respectively. Events now started to happen at a rapid pace. False Dmitri II was driven out of his base in Tushino by the Russians and the Swedes. However, Filaret and his supporters managed to escape, and then they headed west to Sigismund's base in Smolensk, to negotiate with the Polish king. So, maybe things were starting to look promising for the Tsar, but a number of his supporters had started to wonder whether Russia allying itself with Sweden had been such a good idea, especially when news started to leak out about how much Vasily had bargained away to get them on side. The Tsar had agreed to give up all of Russia's claims in Livonia, remember that, ceded significant Russian territory south of Livonia and promised to join the Swedes in a war against the Commonwealth. Plus, these followers perceived Sigismund's army as the bigger threat, which actually proved to be the case, as the Poles then defeated the Swedes at the Battle of Klushino on the 4th of July 1610. And so they lost their nerve and deposed Vasily in a hastily arranged coup forcing him to enter a monastery as a monk, where he would stay, probably to his great relief, for the next couple of years. Moscow now came under control of a group of nobles whom historians refer to as the Seven Boyars, but who I will refer to as simply the Seven, which sounds kind of mysterious and also gives me a break from saying the word boyar over and over again. In the meantime, false Dmitri II's army had regrouped. The Swedes had retreated north to watch on the sidelines, very wise of them. 
The seven, therefore, decided that their best course of action was to throw their lot in with the Poles. But before they could do anything, news reached them that Sigismund had tired of the negotiations with Philarek, flung him and his supporters into a Polish prison, and then ordered his army eastwards to take Moscow, which they did in late 1610. Now, Sigismund's original thought had been to put his son Vladislav on the Russian throne, but somewhere along the line he had a change of heart, and he let it be known that he had decided to become the Tsar himself. The Swedes, seeing that the Polish king was on his way to Moscow, invaded northwestern Russia and started to march upon Novgorod, and at the end of the year 1610, forced Dmitri II, after one last roll of the dice, when he attempted a lightning raid on Moscow, was shot and killed by one of his own soldiers. And so once again the Poles had occupied Moscow, and with the seven nowhere to be seen, and with the rest of the country rudderless and almost on the point of lawlessness and disintegration, it was left to the patriarch, Hermogen, to rally the Russians to fight back against the Polish invaders. Now it's unclear as to how the Patriarch got his message out, but he did, and his words continued to spread throughout the country, so that by early 1611 a joint ragtag Russian Cossack army had formed and was marching towards Moscow, well doesn't everyone, with the aim of driving out the Polish invaders. But at the 11th hour everything went disastrously wrong. The Poles got wind of what Hermogen had been up to and slung the Patriarch into prison, Notice how back then people, people were always being slung or thrown into prison. Realising that the Russian army, which is now referred to as the First National Army, was fast approaching, the Poles then set fire to Moscow and retreated inside the Kremlin to await their fate. And they waited. And waited. And waited, but nothing happened. And that was because the First National Army had taken time out to, di to discuss major differences of opinion around what it was that they actually wanted to achieve. The Russian aristocratic elements wanted to restore the old order, while the Cossacks and the peasants wanted full-scale changes. And so, just on the cusp of victory, the Cossacks murdered the leader of the nobles and then rode away to support the claim of the son of Marina and false Dimitri too, who was known as the Baby Brigand. Meanwhile, in the north of the country, the Swedes had taken Novgorod, and in Moscow, Hermogen, who was still in prison, had been busy. He'd managed to smuggle out yet another message, and to cut a long story short, this led to the formation of the Second National Army, led by a merchant named Kuzma Minin and a prince, Dmitri Pozarsky, and there is rather a grandiose monument to both in Moscow's Red Square. Now, their aims were to get rid of the Poles and the Swedes and to restore the old social order. They set up a provisional government in Yaroslavl and by the summer of 1612 were in a position to reclaim Moscow. However, and you'll be relieved to know that for this episode, this is the last however, the Cossacks suddenly reappeared on the scene, this time under the leadership of False Dmitri III, who was probably a church deacon named Sidorka, 
although some thought that he was maybe the son of false Dimitri too. I know, I'm getting a bit weary of all this too. But don't worry, this incursion was short-lived. False Dimitri III was murdered in July 1612, and by early November, the Second National Army, after a couple of months of bitter street fighting, had retaken Moscow. News of the capital's fall reached the Polish king at Volokolamsk, less than 30 kilometres, about 19 miles away, and the following day, Sigismund, who had been on his way to assist the, the Moscow garrison, decided that enough was enough, I share his pain, and headed back westwards towards Poland. And then in February 1613, the thousand-member-strong National Council, or Zemsky Sobor, assembled in Moscow, and after several days of political wrangling and backroom meetings, decided to appoint a new Tsar. And it's from this state that the time of troubles is considered by most historians to have officially ended. And that's where I'll leave things for this week. Next time we'll be looking at who the new Tsar was and why it was him that had been chosen. Then we'll wrap up on the time of troubles, tie up any loose ends, look at the winners and losers, and I'll also provide my overall thoughts. And then finally, we get into the new Tsar's reign and look at some of the challenges that he was going to have to try to get to grips with. So, until then, with all of that to look forward to, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon.